0: This is the second week on the second of the Ten Commandments. Last week we talked about what the second commandment forbids and how images and idols work as part of man-made religious transactions. We saw how idols tempt us to control the outcome of events or to, to live by sight and not by faith and to seek grace and blessing through manipulation. That's the way idols work. And this dynamic, of course, isn't limited to just things made of stone or wood, but it also happens in our minds, too. And the true God, the God of the Bible, calls his people to something very different than this kind of man-made religious transaction kind of arrangement. He calls us into a relationship with him based on his initiation of love and grace towards us this morning as we uh, are looking at the commandments, I invite you to turn in your red hymnal back to the the catechism questions on page 873. The commandments are all listed in, of course, the catechism comes from the 1640s, so the language is a bit different than what we're often used to, but that's okay. We can still learn a lot from it. Uh, The catechism um, question for the second commandment is number 49, and then we'll also read Uh, a couple more of these. I'll read the question and then invite you to respond in unison with the answer. Which is the second second commandment? Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commands. Let's also look at number 50. What is required in the second commandment? The second commandment requireth the receiving, observing, In keeping, pure and entire, all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed in his word. I also want you to turn over one page, and we'll do question—two pages, actually. Question number 88, on page 876. What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicated to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Thank you. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is on one of his missionary journeys. He ends up in Athens, and we know, of course, Athens is the philosophical, intellectual, cultural center of the ancient world, the foundation for Western thought. And Paul's spirit is provoked, disturbed by all of the idols that he sees around him, including an altar that has an inscription to it that says, To the unknown God. So, Paul uses this opportunity to make this unknown God known to the people by describing how the Creator God isn't a part of the creation and he doesn't need human servants and human temples and human statues. And Paul says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. That's Acts 17. 29 the athenians were worried that they didn't have all of their divine bases covered it was an expression right of the the ineffectiveness the frailty of the universal human religious impulse to represent divine beings through human art and imagination what happens if you miss one what if you displease to god without even knowing it So this is right. So that's why they have this altar to an unknown God if there is one that they didn't know about and this is this transactional kind of approach And this morning I want to talk again about how God replaces this idea of a transaction with a relationship and further How the gift of worship as it's described in the Bible strengthens and grows our relationship with God We'll talk this morning a lot about corporate worship I'd also draw your attention to a sermon that I preached back in February where I preached about worship when we were talking about the four uh, pillars. I don't want to—I had something of that sermon in mind, so I wouldn't be too repetitive in this sermon. So if there are things that I forgot that you were interested in and you weren't here that Sunday, whenever it was in February, you could go back and look at that. For our text this morning, I want to look at John chapter 4. It's the story of the woman at the well um, with, uh, interacting with Jesus. It's on page 753 if you're using the Pew Bibles from John 4, starting in verse 19. This is, We're picking up a conversation that Jesus has had with this woman. Uh, she says, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared... Worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus pulls the surprise on her, right? I who speak to you am He. This interaction with Jesus and the woman at the well is a beautiful story in which Jesus crosses all kinds of cultural barriers. In order that people, Samaritans, right, hated enemy people, would come to believe in him and would find living water, that living water that gives eternal life. The topic of worship comes up in the course of this dialogue when the woman senses that Jesus is some kind of prophet or something, has special insight into her life, and so she asks about this issue that was a controversy of the day. As we've just read it. The Samaritans believe that only the first five books of the Old Testament were valid, and so they didn't accept Jerusalem as the central place of worship, but worshiped in a sort of semi-Jewish way on Mount Gerizim. And Jesus responds that the place of worship is not the issue. And we have to recognize, of course, right, seems obvious to us but we have to recognize that this was a radical statement for both jews and samaritans and any other ancient people right places were seen as sacred and had special powers you couldn't just worship anywhere according to the way that religions work the place was always of central importance and jesus is saying no wait you can worship everywhere Jesus is blowing up the categories of tribal religion in which religion is connected to a place, and he's saying the Father is looking for different kind of worshipers than that. Jesus also reorients the woman to this idea that the way of salvation is found in the Jewish scriptures through the Jewish Messiah. But that doesn't mean that it's only open to Jews. Right, that mean, But Jesus is also saying it's not based on ethnicity or heritage. Rather, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So Jews and Samaritans and all kinds of people can be true worshipers according to this requirement. And again, these words would have blown up the categories of the people that Jesus was talking to, as he so often did. It's like he's talking on this plane and they're down here and he's yet communicating with them. And drawing them into understanding a reality very different than what might be in their minds. He's not describing rituals. He's describing how we worship in spirit and in truth. I want to look at those two aspects of it. First, in spirit. Jesus says true worshipers must worship in spirit. And one of the questions that people have debated is whether Jesus is referring to the spirit of the worshiper or to the Holy Spirit. The Greek is not It's ambiguous. They didn't use capital letters or otherwise mark it. And so it's very much keeping in John's style to hold things in tension or to use kind of ambiguous language, using simple words but speaking more on two levels. And John does this all the time. He's talking about water. He's talking about living water. He's talking about light. He's talking about true light. He's talking about physical nourishment and bread and he's talking about spiritual bread right in in the gospel of john we see these ten, this simple words simple concepts that have two layers of meaning and the physical meaning points to a deeper spiritual reality and i think that's what's going on here is that uh, it's a both and kind of statement from the whole bible we know that the holy spirit must enlighten our hearts that we could know god and worship him truly In the previous chapter, in chapter 3 of John, Jesus describes the contrast of being born of the flesh versus being born of the Spirit. Unless one is born again, that is, Jesus said, being born of the Holy Spirit, as he's explaining it to Nicodemus. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit is a prerequisite for all true worship of God. Without the Spirit, one can't know God at all or how to approach Him or what to do. But it seems clear also that the spirit of the worshiper is in view. Paul was troubled in his spirit when he saw all of these idols in Athens. And we learn from the New Testament all over the place that worship is to come from a deep place within us, from the spiritual part of us, from the core of our being, from our hearts. We're to actively participate in worship. And the participation is to move our affections, to change what we love, to change what we value. It's to connect with our whole being, including our emotional and our spiritual life. One of the problems throughout the history of the church has been this issue of reducing the congregation to spectators. This can happen in today's modern worship services in which the music is kind of like a concert and the preacher is like a motivational speaker slash entertainer, this happened in the medieval church in Europe when the priest did everything and the whole service was conducted in a language that wasn't the language of the common people. Right? Both of these distortions happen and they're distortions because they separate true worship and worship in spirit and worship in participation from the people. And all of it is done by just a few professionals. And that's not what God has in mind when we talk about, when he's talking about worship. And we see this dynamic of spirit and truth coming together in the Old Testament. Of course, Jesus isn't just saying something completely out of the blue. There's this idea that this is the way worship of God has always been. In Isaiah 29:13, 13, uh, it's a passage that Jesus actually quotes twice in his interaction with the Pharisees. This is what Isaiah 29 says. The Lord says, These people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Did you hear both rebukes? These people are doing their religious duty, but it's not from the heart. Their spiritual lives, their emotional lives, their core of their being is far from me, right? And their worship is made up of the rules of men not according to God's rules. And so they're not worshiping in spirit and they're not worshiping in truth. So let's look at this idea again about worshiping in truth. Our understanding of the second commandment includes the prohibition that all human contrived the, the prohibition of all human contrived worship elements and forms. This is the Reformed interpretation that rose in the, in the 16th century in Europe as a, as a reclamation, a reclaiming of what the Bible said about worship. And some groups of Christians thought that worship could include anything that wasn't forbidden by the Bible. But the Reformers in our tradition said that worship should only, con- should only include that what is commanded in the Bible. Does that make sense? not just what's forbidden. You can do everything as long as it's not forbidden versus you can only do what God tells us explicitly to do. And that's what's been called the regulative principle of worship. It's a mouthful, but what it means is worship God as God tells you to worship Him. It's really simple. And the Reformers were very concerned to to try to limit the possibility of human of this human imaginative impulse to worship in our own ways. And they wanted to limit that as much as possible. And so this is very practical because it means for us that everything that we do on Sunday morning must be clearly commanded in Scripture. In Scripture, we find a list of elements of things that we're called to do in corporate worship. And that's what we do, and that's all. Because those are the things that God has commanded us to do. I found this quote this week from a PCA um, professor. His name is Mark Robinson. He said this, Much of the beauty of Reformed worship is in its simplicity and ordinariness. It is simple, not simplistic, and ordinary because it aims to do simply what God has commanded and ordained. Nothing more and nothing less. It values divine receptivity that is what God says, over human creativity, that is what man conceives. And there's comfort, he goes on to say, there is comfort in knowing that every element of the worship service is something explicitly warranted by Scripture. The pastor and elder can open the Bible and point to specific passages and make Scripture-based arguments when asked specific questions about the why of worship. It alleviates the pressure to pastorally innovate in a quest to keep sheep engaged and interested. We're not in the business of innovating and entertaining or in the business of just doing what people like. We feel like God has given us the rules about worship. Now, it's not that we don't care what you think, of course. We have received your feedback from the congregational survey. We welcome constructive and kind feedback. We are having lots of conversations still at the session level and in other levels and in committees about how to process the feedback from the survey and and the congregation. But we're not going to be led by popular opinion. We're called to follow the Bible. And that's part of what leadership is called to do. And, of course, we have freedom in the application of the principles. We can change the order of the service. We can create new songs. We can use different instruments. There's lots of freedom, but the, f- the the form isn't fixed. The elements are fixed, and those are things that God has ordained for us to do. Churches get on all kinds of interesting mailing lists somehow, as you can imagine. When I was in Alabama, the church got a catalog, and it was uh, full of clothing and accessories and everything to go along with, a liturgical dancing ministry as part of worship. Now, if you had ever visited our church in Alabama, you would know that that was not part of the equation. And we know, of course, that David danced before the Lord, probably naked, actually. And we know that it's good to move our bodies in worship, and probably maybe even more than we tend to do. But some churches have sort of liturgical dance groups. It's kind of like a choir. Instead of having special music, they have choreographed dancing as part of worship, designed to help the congregation worship through the beauty of dance. And I'm not I don't want to say, i want to say that's not my tradition, and I want to say the New Testament, as far as I know, doesn't forbid that, but it doesn't command it. And so since the New Testament doesn't command it, then we uh, would not do it as part of this tradition, as part of the application of the regulative principle of worship. The quote above called our worship, from that pastor, called our worship simple and ordinary, now, that shouldn't mean boring or uninteresting or unremarkable or unsupernatural. Worship should never be those things. But it does, in fact, point that to the idea that the ways in which God creates growth in His people are kind of ordinary. God generally doesn't write messages for us in the sky. He doesn't generally answer our questions with a booming voice from the cloud. He doesn't generally show us his love through some kind of sign or some kind of miracle. Sometimes, and of course, he could do any of those things, but he generally he doesn't. And so it it causes us to ask the question, how does God give grace to us? How does by what instrument by what means in what way is god communicating his grace to us and we believe as we read in the catechism question number 88 that the ordinary ways that god communicates to us the benefits of redemption the benefits of salvation his grace to us are the word the sacraments and prayer and so these are the things that we're to emphasize in our worship because these are the things that god has given us as the means by which he shows us and talks to us about salvation. These are called the means of grace. We emphasize them not just in corporate worship, but in all all ways and in all ministries of the church. We're to orient our lives around these means of grace. So let's look at them quickly in turn. The first is the word. We know the truth about God and salvation and everything because he's given us his word. God communicates to us this huge account of redemptive history. He tells us about his ways in the world and how Jesus came to show us clearly who God is. As I mentioned last week when we were talking about idols, the word of God describing, showing, teaching us about Jesus is worth much more than a thousand pictures. Pictures, idols, images can't come close to comparing with the accounts and the promises that we find In God's Word. And so, as part of our worship on Sunday mornings, we're constantly interacting with God's God's Word beyond just the sermon, in our readings and in our hymns, in our confessions, in our benedictions, in everything. We are to center our worship by proclaiming God's Word and sharing it with one another. As I was working on this, it reminded me of the first uh, stanza of the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said? For you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. What more can he say than to you he has said? Do you need more promises from God? Do you need more assurance of his love and the gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sins? Sure, we all do. We're like buckets that have a leak. And our faith is stretched by our circumstances. Where do we get refilled? We need God's word, and we need it to fill our hearts and our minds, and that is part of what we do in worship. So however imperfect we are as a community however poorly I'm communicating to you, however difficult it can be to get here on Sunday mornings, however distracted our brains can be, we are striving in our fragile clay jars to proclaim the very words of God and to hold out that truth about God, about humanity, about the solution to the biggest problem that anyone and everyone faces in this life. Worship has that kind of urgency to it. But it's also ordinary. It's not fancied up. It's not effective based on human ingenuity. It's effective because it's the Word of God. In one of our seminary preaching classes, uh, we had one of the exercises was to meet. Two of us together would meet with a professor. We would watch a videotape. Yes, that was when there were videotapes. Um of each of our sermons together, and then we would discuss it with this professor. And I was there with my good friend. We were in this meeting. My friend had been preaching from Ephesians 5. You know, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And, you know, he was trying to get his head around how to communicate that. And and my friend asked the professor, basically, how do I grab the audience's attention? I mean, we've heard this a million times. And the professor got this funny expression on his face, and he said... Well, that's pride. It's pride that makes you feel the need to dress up God's word and to think that it doesn't have the power to convict of sin and to call to repentance and produce spiritual growth in the life of the audience, right? I remember this very vividly, (laughs) you know? Point well taken. You're right. Why do we think that we have to dress up the word? Along with the word, God communicates to us through the sacraments. Baptism is a picture of purifying. It's a picture of the washing away of all sin, whether it's administered to infants or adults. The picture is of God cleansing with water as the sign of initiation into the community of faith. The Lord's Supper is a beautiful picture of grace extended and spiritual nourishment offered to all who believe. The gospel is shown tangibly in the sacraments as part of our worship. We taste and we see that the Lord is good as often as we receive communion and as often as we observe baptism. We taste and we see that the Lord is good. It's the same message as the Word. It's the same message as the Bible, but it's acted out and it's proclaimed in a different kind of way because God knows that we need to understand that too because our buckets are leaky. Finally, and the third is prayer. Prayer is another obvious way that God communicates His grace to us. Prayer gets to the heart of the idea of the difference between a transactional approach to God and a relational approach to God. And obviously, we can pray in a transactional kind of way. God, if you answer this prayer, then I will... whatever. And we know from stories of of saints and, and, and missionaries and all kinds of famous people that their journey of faith may have started like that. But that's not how it ended, of course, that they were drawn then into a relationship with God. And even if we pray with mixed motives, God listens, God responds to our prayers, and prayer changes us as we listen and respond to his calling upon our lives. Our prayers don't obligate God in any way, of course, but they're effective in us communicating with him, in us living in a relationship with him. We can't finish this passage, this commandment, without including the warning that we read uh, from Exodus 20. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. God is jealous for our worship. Jesus told us the same thing when he said the Father is seeking worshipers. God is seeking after worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And this commandment describes the generational effect to that. That those who hate God face a judgment. And that judgment can pass down for three or four generations. Generations. On the flip side, God provides his steadfast love, his covenantal faithfulness, to a thousand generations of those who love him. And certainly these aren't ironclad promises. We're not consigned to the faith of our parents. Many of us come from unbelieving homes, right? But we, but we can see even there a contrast between a judgment that extends for three or four and a blessing that extends for a thousand of how merciful God is and how much he is good to his people. How can we be changed as a result of the second commandment, of its positive command for us to worship God in spirit and in truth in the way that God wants to be worshiped? I want you to know something this morning. I want you to know that God has graciously told us how to worship Him. As we're obedient, as we're diligent, as we're faithful, even very imperfectly, He makes our worship acceptable through Jesus in the power of the Spirit. And we, I want you to know that the unbelieving world is groping around in the darkness trying to know how to approach God. They don't so much build idols anymore, but that's what they're doing. They're groping around in the darkness, trying to know how to approach God. And the Bible gives us a clear answer about how to draw near to God in repentance and faith in Christ and as a part of ongoing worship. I want you to know that. I want you to believe that corporate worship is really good for you, that it's vital for your spiritual life, that Lone Ranger Christians struggle Because God has provided a body for the very purpose of support and encouragement and grace as we worship together. That's what I want you to believe. I want you to do something as a result. I want you to think about this. I want you to gain a new perspective on worship. I want you to consider Sunday mornings maybe a little bit differently than before. Come expectantly prepared to give your best in worship, and prepared to receive from God His grace afresh for you. It's probably not going to hit you like a lightning bolt. Not every service is a home run. But in the ordinariness of worship, we can take comfort. Week after week, year after year, God is speaking to us. He's meeting with us. He will root his word into our lives. He will make us grow as we respond in obedience and faith. He has big things for the lives of his people, and worship is a huge piece of that, that we can't grow, that we get stuck in our spiritual lives if we're not vitally connected and worshiping the Lord. He's committed to you. He's committed to helping you understand this amazing grace of living in a relationship with Him. Not in a transaction, but in a relationship with the true and living God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray with me. Father, we're thankful for the good news this morning. The good news tells us that we have a Savior. The good news tells us that uh, we're loved. The good news tells us how to draw near to you. We pray that you would help us to do so with with faith and and with trust. Help us to do so with our whole beings. Help us to consider, again, what it means that we meet with you every week and that you meet with us. It's an amazing truth. Help help that to to go deeply within us and, and to change us. As we go out into our week, Lord, we pray you would continue to root in us the, the confidence that comes from your love and your grace. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.